in the number one best-selling song and hymn book since it was first published in 1984 for Billy Graham's Mission England campaign. In the past 23 years, Mission Praise, this is the latest edition, has gone through several editions and editions of new songs, and I understand that sales now total 7 million. Although we put the words of songs and hymns on the screens now, we still use uh, largely the songs that are in Mission Praise. And while most of us, I hope, would rejoice in the increase of new and old songs and hymns of praise to God, I wonder how many of us are concerned about a corresponding decrease in prayer. While mission praise is on the rise, mission prayer is in decline. Let me give you just one simple symptom of that. Last Sunday, if you're here in Charlotte Chapel, we encourage you to join with us on Wednesday evening to join with thousands of churches throughout the nation to pray for Tear Fund, who are encouraging us to join a global movement of Christians praying for an end to poverty, both physical and spiritual. When we came together on Wednesday, by my count, 37 people came to pray in a church with a membership approaching 700. And a congregation, if you total the different people who come here morning and evening, it's approaching a thousand different people. This would indicate to me, whatever our reasons, legitimate or otherwise, that mission praise is more popular than mission prayer. That mission praise is more popular than mission prayer. So, does it really matter? In a world of so many demands on our time, and with an increased and helpful focus on both personal prayer and prayer together in small groups, is the church meeting, let alone the church prayer meeting, doomed dodo-like to extinction? Does it really matter? And on this Mission Sunday, I want to say, quite clearly and emphatically, that it does matter. And according to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of his church, the evangelization of the world here in Edinburgh and the rest of the globe depends on mission prayer. Now, how can I be so bold to make such a statement? Some of you are already sitting there disagreeing with me, probably. Well, by way of evidence, turn with me just to a few verses in the Gospel of Matthew. It will help to have a Bible in front of you. If you don't have one, just look around or ask one, someone to pass you one. And uh, let's turn to Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. Matthew 9, 38. We'll read through to the next chapter. It's page 974, if you have a pew Bible. Matthew 9, verse 35 then. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. That's been our theme today. The voice and the hands of Jesus. When he saw the crowds, 
He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Called his twelve disciples to him, gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out. Now we'll pause there and let me simply focus on the final two verses of chapter 9. And this is going to be very simple and quite brief for me. Okay, first of all, verse 37, notice the situation. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Verse 38, the solution that Jesus gives. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, look with me then at these two parts. First of all, the situation. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Jesus contrasts the size of the harvest with that of the workforce. Unlike most countries today, where the problem is unemployment, too little work and too many workers, in the kingdom of God, as so often, the exact opposite is true. Too much work, too few workers. And using an image that his hearers would be very familiar with, Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful. There's a large harvest out there. Now, of course, he's not speaking of a harvest of wheat and barley, but rather a harvest of needy people which he sees all around him. Notice the context when he saw the crowds. Crowds of people have been following Jesus as he makes his way through the nation of Israel heading for destiny in Jerusalem, the capital city, where his mission will come to fulfilment. Now, you don't need any particular insight to recognize a crowd when you see one. There was a large crowd yesterday in Hampton Park, which you will have seen if you have Sky TV. I won't discuss what happened there, but you can see large crowds of people every day walking down Princess Street. You don't need insight to recognize a crowd. But you do need insight to recognize a crowd as a harvest. A harvest of needy people. And Jesus, the Son of God, looks at the crowds around him and he sees them as a harvest. He sees them as needy people in their true state. Notice how they're described here. First of all, as harassed and helpless. I'm not sure he's harassed or harassed, but I'll stick with my harassed at the moment. It doesn't really matter. Uh, different translations of the Bible try to convey these two little words and what they mean. Distressed and downcast. Dejected and deserted. Fatigued and forlorn, harassed and helpless. Together, they describe the sad state of the crowds. 
individually and collectively as desperately needy people. And the reason for this, we learn, is that they are like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep who need a shepherd, human beings are made to be led. We need, we're programmed not to be independent beings. We are made to know God. He has made, God has made us to be in that relationship with him, which the Bible often describes as that of a shepherd and his sheep. The shepherd who cares for his sheep, who leads his sheep, who protects his sheep, who feeds his sheep. And without someone to lead and feed, human beings are like sheep without a shepherd, lost and hungry and helpless. While goats can forage for themselves, sheep cannot. One commentator, Leon Morris, writes, Sheep without a shepherd points to people who are in great danger and without the resources to escape from it. And that is what Jesus saw when he saw the crowds. Now, I simply ask myself, as I often look at the crowds coming through Edinburgh to work here in the chapel office, do we see... What do we see when we look at crowds? What do we see when we see people? When we see the guy on Princess Street with his little poster and his dog saying, any spare cash? Now you might say, yeah, that guy's, yeah, he's a sheep without a shepherd. He's harassed and helpless. But so is the guy who passes him by in the pinstripe suit with his briefcase, rushing off for his next appointment. And Matthew tells us that Jesus, seeing the crowds... Harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd, says Jesus had compassion on them. You see, unless you see people as they really are, you won't feel anything about them. The word compassion in the original language is a very strong verb. In the ancient world, you feel emotions with your bowels. We say we love you with all your heart. They say we love you with all your bowels. It's actually strange. It's what you call a gut feeling, literally. Um... The verb used here is an interesting verb in the Gospels because it's only used of Jesus, first of all, as he encounters the sick, the sad, the demon-possessed, the bereaved. He has compassion on them. The only other place it's used is in the parables that Jesus told. It's the word used, that word used of the good Samaritan who sees the guy by the side of the road who's been mugged and he feels compassion for him. It's the word used of the father who welcomes the prodigal coming back home from the far country in rags. When he saw him, he had compassion on him and he ran and flung his arms around him, welcomed him home. We looked at it last Sunday evening. And one sure sign that you see people as they really are is that you feel compassion for them. Are we moved with compassion? You see, Jesus doesn't write off these crowds as hopeless and helpless. Beyond hope, beyond help. No, he has come, the good shepherd to seek and save lost sheep. Again, we looked at it in Luke 15, that parable of the good shepherd who goes and seeks the one lost sheep. And changing the image, mixing the image, he says, these crowds are a large harvest of needy people ready to be reaped. In other words, they're ripe for rescue. Uh, William Barclay brings out the contrast between how Jesus saw the crowds and how the religious leaders of his day saw them. He writes, the Pharisees saw the common people as chaff to be destroyed and burned up. Jesus saw them as a harvest to be reaped and to be saved. Now, again, let me ask you a question. When you see the crowds in Edinburgh, do you see them as a harvest ripe to be reaped? 
Or do you say, no, 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 they're, they're, they're tough people. Look, if there's anything to be done there, there's no real interest. Uh, the seed, if you push the analogy, has hardly emerged. And if there's any fruit, it's pretty hard. It's not really ripe yet, and it's not the time yet. Jesus sees them as ripe for rescue right now. Remember, if you know the gospel story as well, that story where Jesus is passing through Samaria and he sits down by a well and his disciples have gone off in town to get some food and a needy woman comes there and he begins to talk to her and offer her living water. She's a needy woman. She's coming at noon. No one would normally come at noon because she's a woman with a dubious reputation and yet Jesus is speaking to her. And the disciples eventually return with their carry-out or whatever they got in their local town. And they're surprised to see Jesus speaking with a woman, particularly a woman like this. Uh, and they're afraid to ask him anything. And when the woman has finished speaking with Jesus, she rushes off back into the town to tell the people what she's heard and who she's met. And the disciples don't know what to say. And Jesus says this to them. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, four months and then harvest? I tell you, open your eyes, look at the fields, they're ripe for harvest. Many people believe as Jesus said that, the disciples looked up and there's a stream of people in their white robes, ripe for harvest, coming out of the town to hear about this remarkable man that this woman has met. And many in that city believe and come to faith. This week we met, our elders met this week, and uh, Mes McConnell, our pastor from Nidri, uh, who's preaching, as you heard this evening, uh, came to share with us what the Lord is doing in Nidri. Uh, he told us when he came a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, he started a small group for seekers, very needy people. I think it's three or four people in the group. He said, they've all got saved. I'm going to find another group now, as well as helping them on. And he said to me, that stuck in my mind, he said, everyone told me how hard Nidri would be, but it's a harvest field out there. I'm having to make appointments to see needy people who want to talk with me about Jesus Christ. Yes, the harvest, Jesus says, is plentiful. And I think our problem is we don't recognize it. First of all, we don't see people as needy. And if we do see them as needy, we think they don't know they're needy. And I simply want to say to you, I think that's wrong. We live in a world still today of very needy people. And if we could only make contact and recognize what they are, there is a harvest to be reaped. The harvest is plentiful. Remember, some time ago, discussing at the Minister's Fraternal, as we do, uh, what was happening in the city. And uh, there was some comment about the fact that there are more and more groups working with students in the university. Uh, Christian groups, and there are more and more new churches springing up. Uh, and some of the ministers were, weren't too happy about this and thought it was very confusing and why do we need more people. I'm, I'm with the person who said, hang on a minute, there's enough sinners to go around. Providing that we focus on reaching lost sheep instead of just shifting safe sheep from fold to fold. Yeah, there are plenty of people to go around. The harvest is plentiful. Yes, there is a large harvest of people, not just in Nidri, but in Edinburgh, the people we work with and live with. But in contrast, Jesus says, there is a small workforce of labourers. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers, says Jesus, are few. And nothing has changed in this respect down the years. In the work of God's kingdom, the desperate need is for workers. 
The word translated workers in the original Greek is a simple word that means laborer. Usually a day laborer who worked hard, rolled up his sleeves. Nothing fancy. And I have to say that such people are in short supply in our churches. We have plenty of spectators, uh, quite a few critics, a good number of sermon tasters and pew fillers, but only a small proportion of workers. I'm still involved, as you know, in the work of Wycliffe Bible Translators. We desperately need more people of all kinds. There are countries open, but we don't have the people. Talk to HCJB, you'll find the same thing. There's a desperate need for more people. Ask almost any mission society. The desperate need is for workers to seize opportunities. As was once said, most Christians miss opportunities because they're dressed in overalls and look like work. And if you ask any church leader, I have to tell you the situation is the same. Maybe you're a visitor this morning to Charlotte Chapman. Wow, this is a big church. There's a lot of people here, comparatively. I have to tell you that our desperate need in Charlotte Chapel is workers. We are strained to the limit, looking for people who will pastorally lead small groups. We're looking for people who will help in our youth council. We're looking for people who will go out to Nidra and work with the young people out there. Almost in every area, we're looking for people. When we meet as elders, we're constantly saying, we need more people. A small amount of people are doing too much work. We need to roll up our sleeves and see the harvest that is ripe and get involved. Now, if a church were an organization like any other, that would be serious enough any organization that's got a workforce, a limited workforce. But in the work of God's kingdom, it's far greater. Because our core business is saving lost people. This is our mission Sunday. Mission begins at home. But we support workers throughout the world. Ian's out there in India today. There are other folk in different parts of the world, if you look at our prayer diary. But there are folk working close by. There's Barry Maureen who stood up there, uh, spreading the gospel through literature, through talent. There are people serving the Lord and the desperate need is for workers. The harvest is plentiful. There aren't enough laborers to bring it in. And that was the situation in Jesus' day and I simply say that nothing has changed. It is a very serious situation. The harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. That's the situation. Now let's turn to the solution. What do you do in view of this? Well, if this were a human enterprise, we would embark on things like, for example, a mass recruitment campaign. You know the sort of thing. Your country needs you. Or your church needs you. If we get a big poster in Charlotte Chapel with this guy and we'll change it to your church needs you. Or we could launch a skill training program. Or we could prepare a strategy document on growth, which we've done in the past. Others attempt to persuade people by making them feel either guilty because they're not doing it or at the opposite extreme by making them feel needed and enthused. If you've been to any missionary event in the past, you'll almost certainly have heard people say, how do you respond to the missionary challenge? Well, there are three ways you can respond. You can go, you can give, you can pray. And that's the usual order in which it's given suggesting that to go is the best thing you can do, to give is the next best, and if you have nothing or little to give and can't go, well, then you can always pray. Prayer is the last resort. Remember what Tony Blair once said many years ago? The priorities of the government were education, education, 
education. And I simply want to say on this Mission Sunday as we respond to the missionary challenge, the priority should be pray, pray, pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, says Jesus, look, the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few, what do you do about it? Therefore, in view of this great harvest, the shortage of workers, what do you do? Jesus says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers, workers, into his harvest field. The word ask is a very weak translation of the verb that's used there. It's more intense. Uh, the authorized version translates it, pray the Lord of the harvest. It's more intense than that. The New English Bible says, beg the Lord of the harvest. That is, plead with him to send out workers into his harvest field. It's the word used in the Gospels of the leper who begs Jesus to make him clean. It's the word of the demoniac who asks Jesus and begs him, prays, don't torture me. It's the word used of the distraught father of the demon-possessed boy who comes to Jesus and begs him to help his son. Now, of course, there's a great mystery here. If it's the Lord's harvest field, if he wants the harvest to be reaped, why should we need to beg him to send out workers to do it? There is no neat answer to that. But first and foremost, when we pray, it is a sign of dependency. Dependency on God to ask, to pray, to beg, to plead. To pray is to remind ourselves that we're asking for something that only God can do. Yes, workers are needed. But only God can provide them. And so that is why we pray and beg and plead with him to send out more workers. Just Look at this practically with me. It's easy to assume when we look at the needs, in, at least in a church like Charlotte Chapel, why do we think, well, we'll have to cajole a few more people, we'll have to twist a few arms, let's go through the membership list and see who we're not using, who we could possibly use at this time. Now, all those things are helpful. It's just we shouldn't do them. But first and foremost, we need to say, Lord, there's a desperate need here. We could be doing so much more. We could be reaping so much more. So we need to get down to prayer, mission prayer, ask. The Lord of the harvest. Notice added to this is a theme of authority. He is the Lord of the harvest. It's his harvest field. And while we emphasize human responsibility, that we have to respond to God's call, this reminds us of divine sovereignty. That he is the Lord of his harvest. It is his harvest field in which the laborers work. That is why Jesus taught us to pray. When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, we pray for workers, but only God can send them out. And when we do, notice a third dimension of what is said here. There's a note of urgency. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. See, the workers are not motivated by enthusiasm or driven by guilt feelings or persuaded by eloquence. They are driven by God. The verb is a very strong verb. It means to drive out, to push out, to impel To compel, it's the same word used, you remember after Jesus was tempted, the Holy Spirit drove him out into the desert to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. And you see, the workers need to know that they are driven by God, or they will down tools at the first sign of difficulty. You see, I didn't mention about the prayer meeting this week so that you all feel guilty and think, gosh, I should have gone to the prayer meeting, I feel really bad about this. Next time's a prayer meeting, I'm definitely going to go. Well, you, you might do it for a week or two. But if you're driven by God and you really see the need and God moves you to pray and moves us as a church to pray, then there's a note of urgency. The Apostle Paul, writing the Christians in Corinth, says, 
For Christ's love compels us. Similar verb, not the same verb, but it means it constrains us. It, it forces us forward. Because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So do we have that same kind of urgency and compulsion to pray? You will only experience it if you know what it means that Christ died for you and that you don't belong to yourself anymore. He rose again to give you a new life so that you could serve him. That's what Mess phoned me up this week when I asked him to stand in and preach. He came back to me and said, I'll preach on Haggai 1. He also said, you have to wear a tie. And I said, no, so if he doesn't wear one, don't worry about it. Um, and he came back to me and said, I'm going to preach on Haggai 1. And if you want a title, it's Serving the Lord or Pleasing Ourselves. So come along this evening and find out what mess has to say on that subject. So the Lord Jesus Christ urges us to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, if you know anything about prayer, you'll know that when you pray for certain things, you're not always sure what God's will is. Someone is sick. Should I pray for healing at this point? Should I ask that God will help them to cope through that illness, whatever it might be? There are all sorts of areas where you're not sure what to pray for. Here is one you can be absolutely clear that if you pray for this, God will answer it. Because Jesus says, do it. He wants the harvest to be reaped. And he urges us, therefore, to pray. And when we do, we can be sure he will answer. And maybe we'll be the answer to our own prayers. See, that's why I read on in chapter 10. Uh, the chapter divisions, by the way, as you probably know, are not original to the text. When Matthew wrote his gospel, he just wrote on after 9.38 to 10.1. And I want to suggest that here we have an example of answered prayer. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First Simon, called Peter, his brother Andrew, James the son of Zebedee, his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out. Preaching on these verses over a century ago, C.H. Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher said, it appears then that the Lord told them to pray that God would raise up laborers and then call them to be laborers themselves. Not a very promising group of people. One of them even betrayed him. And yet they turned their world upside down. They changed the course of history and the reason why we are here and why this building is here, why this church has existed for 200 years is because they carried out that commission and it was carried out through the generations. So let me conclude by reminding you where we've been and where we need to go. Look at the situation. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Now the solution. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. What happens? We pray. God sends. We go. Wherever God may call us, because we're all to go. Mission is not just a specialist occupation for certain people. We're all involved in mission. And as we go, we not only work, but as you go out, you see the great harvest field, and you look around you and you think, I could use some other people to help me here. So what do you do? You pray. In the Gospel of Luke, 
He records how Jesus sent out some more workers, 72. Listen carefully. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him into every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Same thing. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. You see what he's saying? He's saying, as you go into the harvest field, you'll be aware of the great needs, so pray for more workers. And what happens when you pray? Well, God sends. And what happens then? Other people go. And what happens is they go, they pray, seeing the need. And so you begin to reap a harvest. You see, if there's such a great harvest out there today, and we are privileged as a church to have so many resources and people, I simply ask you as a pastor, and, and I stand condemned as much as anyone else in this church, probably more than anyone else, why are we not reaping a greater harvest in Charlotte Chapel? For God's glory. Next week, three people will be baptized. Give thanks to God for that. That'll be 18 this year. You say, well, that's wonderful. Yeah, but square it down. If we were a church of 100, 10 times less, it'd be 1.8 people. We should be seeing a greater harvest. And I began by suggesting that as a church, we don't take mission prayer seriously. And I simply ask you, as I ask myself, who knows what a harvest we might reap if we did. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Let's pray together.